I'm going to show you some beautiful pictures uh, because I can, because I'm up here and I get to do what I want. Um, so the first picture I'm going to throw up here is of uh, Switzerland. And we put it up on the screen. It's white. It's beautiful. Do you love it? Imagine a beautiful scenery <laughs> expanding the mountainside of Switzerland with little flowers in the foreground and mountains in the background and a green valley through the middle. That was taken with my cell phone, which does not say anything about my cell phone photo taking capabilities. It tells you how beautiful that place must be. It's a cell phone, so to imagine being there in person, it's incredible. Next picture is a place I haven't been, but I would love to go. It's in the cliffs of Scotland. Uh, gorgeous. The water, the cliffs, the green. Many, some of you have been there, I'm sure. Um, I would love to go. Uh, the next picture is a, is a place no one has been to. None of us here have been to, but we all long to go to. Um, it's the Shire with <coughs> Gandalf. This one's for Daniel Miller. Um, I'm sure there's a set in New Zealand somewhere that has this, but not the real place. Not with Gandalf and a long pipe and fireworks. Um, I show you, I show you these, these images for a reason, um, because these images, along with other things, invoke um, in me uh, a sense of joy and wonder, uh, but more than that, um, they pierce to a place of painful longing. Um, it's a place that Lauren talked about when she's talking about looking out over that table of people all enjoying a meal together, laughing, reconciled. It, it's a sense of nostalgia and joy, but it goes beyond that, and it's hard to put into words. In English, we don't have a word for it. In German, they have a word. Hopefully, none of you know how to pronounce this, because I'm going to try. It's Sehnsucht. Sehnsucht. Um, it is untranslatable in English, but it has that sense of painful longing. But more than that, when that joy is triggered, something more that I'm hoping for that I don't even know what it is, a place that I haven't been to, and it almost is a piercing joy. I think this is not a distinctly or unique Christian experience. I think this is a human experience. This is something all humans experience as they live on this earth. And depending on what you believe about your future or your worldview about here and now will define how you receive those moments and what they point to. There's a philosopher, French philosopher in the 20th century, who uh, was a materialist. He had no room in his worldview for an afterlife or a hope beyond this world. And his name was Albert Camus. And I want to read a haunting yet somehow beautiful quote from him. This is what he says about the beauty he experienced. Beauty is unbearable, <clears throat> drives us to despair, offering us for a minute the glimpse of an eternity that, should, that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. And that's so sad. He had no, he had no ability to see past that there would be more. A former atheist, C.S. Lewis, saw it in a different way. This is his quote, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. For Lewis, even true joy accompanied, was accompanied with the stab and pang of inconsolable longing. 
He wrote about that longing even more. He said, those things, those images, those points in time of that joy and that beauty, they are not the thing itself, he says. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. It might not be scenery, but it may be a smell or a beautiful piece of film or literature or music. For me, a lot of times, it's the face of a five-year-old daughter singing and dancing like she doesn't have a care in the world or throwing a football with my son in a crisp, rare, non-humid fall January day in Houston, Texas. It triggers those beautiful glimpses, yet a longing. And the reason I start with this is that the ultimate hope that Scripture speaks of is a earthy thing, even physical. It is not altogether foreign from our current experiences. These moments of joy mixed with longing here and now should point us to the ultimate hope that Jesus himself ultimately brings. This hope, the fulfillment, these ultimate longings are not something we can bring about. We wait for it from heaven. We wait for it from heaven. My goal here as we move into this scripture this is a big topic. My goal is not to dive into end times theology or even debated topics that Christians um, that agree in many things disagree on the millennial reign of Christ and all those things. The good news is the Bible remains very clear about what and where our ultimate hope is. What and where our ultimate hope is. Our hope is from heaven. And spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Spoiler alert, it's his second coming. Our hope ultimately is to be with him. It always has been. From the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, our hope has always been to be with God, whether we knew it or not. And that has always been God's plan, to dwell with his people, to be with humans, that they would see him, know his glory, enjoy him fully. And last week, we talked about the rescue that God brought in the first advent, when Jesus rescues us, saves our souls, brings new life into us that points to this future. So, though our ultimate hope is to be with him, how and where is very important to God in the scriptures. So, that's what I want to look at. Though it's to be with him, how are we to be with him, and where are we to be with him ultimately, finally? Um, the first is hope from heaven. This hope from heaven is renewed bodies on a renewed earth. Renewed bodies on a renewed earth. Somehow, it gets into our thinking that God's desire for us, or what the Scripture teaches is that he wants to rescue us out of this physical world to be disembodied spirits forever. Randy Alcorn, who's a thought leader on this, has this quote, the whole point of Jesus' coming is not simply to snatch our souls out of this world so they can go off and live in disembodied spirit realm of angelic beings. But somehow this pierces in, and it's just not the teaching of Scripture. This morning, this was in my house, as my youngest son got a hoverboard for Christmas, 
And he took it, he got it immediately. And he's in our house, wiving around our little tight corners. He's hovering around, and he, he makes this comment to Kara, my wife, and says, this is going to be like heaven. And she's like, what? So, yeah, we're going to be all hovering around, spirits hovering around in heaven. And he's like, oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, okay. That was this morning. So it's in us. It's, it's filtered in somehow that that is our ultimate hope, disembodied spirits. No connection to our experience here and now on this earthly life. So we've got to do some work. We're going to look at some scriptures. We're going to move quicker than we would want to in such an important topic. Um, the other piece, renewed bodies, the other piece is renewed creation. Um, theologian Wayne Grudem, New Testament theologian Wayne Grudem says this, when referring to this place, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever. But in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be new heavens and new earth and an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. It's better, (laughs) much better. It is really good news, and Jesus brings it about. So we're going to quickly look. We're going to go to our scripture. So if you'll read with me, Ephesians 2, Ephesians, oh, sorry, Philippians 3.20. Got to know where I am. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait, await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says our citizenship is in heaven. The people Paul, Paul was writing to would know a lot about this. Philippi was a Roman colony, so a lot of them had Roman citizenship. Some of them had never been to Rome, but they lived in Philippi. So they knew what it was like to hold a citizenship of a greater city and live somewhere else. And so he speaks of this, and the Bible speaks of this, New Testament speaks of it, of those who are in Christ, who have trusted in Christ. Ephesians 2 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 3 says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. So as Jesus is in heaven and we're waiting from him, our life is united with him. This is the teaching of the New Testament. But our ultimate hope is from heaven. As we read in the verse 20 of Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. From it, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is from heaven and in heaven, but ultimately not to escape and go into disembodied existence with God. So what does the Bible say about when we die? It's an important topic. It's just not the main focus of Paul or the New Testament for the ultimate dwelling place of God with man and us with him. It's just not the ultimate So it's not talked about a lot. The Bible doesn't talk about believers going to heaven very much at all. What it does say is even better, is much better. Philippians 1.23, as Paul is considering his own death on this, in this life, he says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So he said, if he departed this body, he would be with Christ. And that's because he was with him now. Because his spirit fills us now, we will be with him then. And it's very clear, nothing can separate us from Christ. Nothing can separate us from God because of what he has done. The other thing that the New Testament says about this, 
before our resurrection. It uses a metaphor of a sleep. Uh, Paul is comforting the Christians in Thessalonica um, that had, were expecting this return of Jesus, and he comforts them, and he says, I don't want you to be uninformed and not to have hope. For since we believe about those who are asleep, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So this metaphor of asleep is not to point to an unconscious existence with God. It's to point to the temporary nature of it, the temporary nature of it. Theologian W.E. Vine just says this simply, as sleep is known to be temporary, so the death of the body will be found to be. Sleep has its waking. Death will have its resurrection. Sleep has its waking. Death will have its resurrection. But as he comforts those, those Christians, he moves forward in chapter 4 to point to the resurrection and that the ultimate hope is that those who are dead would be raised and those that are still here would all join Jesus together and welcome him into his rule, into the fullness of his kingdom. So even in that passage, Paul points to the resurrection of the body as the ultimate hope. Even in this passage in Philippians 3, we transform our lowly body. It's not a derogatory term. It just means we don't have the ability to live with him forever, and he is going to fix that. For Paul, the goal is not disembodied bliss, but rather phys restored physical existence, and this is a gift from heaven. Paul had the opposite issue with the Corinthian believers. They had a Greek influence, and they had a really hard time believing in a physical res resurrection of the body. So he's combating this throughout the first letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, to these Christians. And in 1 Corinthians 6, they were saying this quote. He quotes back to them what they said. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. They were using this to justify sexual immorality within their midst because they said, well, what does the body matter? The body doesn't matter. It's going to be destroyed, so we, get, we do what we want. This was Paul's response to them. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord up from the dead, and he will raise us also. He will raise us also. And then 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter that is 58 verses long, dedicated to combating this idea that there is no physical resurrection for those who are in Christ. I'm not going to read all 58 verses. You're welcome. But we are going to read three of them. Um, and I think this is the, brings it into um, wonderful clarity. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, he's speaking of Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come the resurrection from the dead. Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is the first fruits, the first fruits. It's his resurrection that Paul was pointing to and that the early Christians were looking towards. 
is that the resurrected body of Jesus was our hope as well, that we would be resurrected in the same way. And in New Testament, is abundantly clear that is God's promise for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have the Spirit of God living in them, that your future, the same Spirit that unites us with Christ and brings the life of heaven into our life, where love and fellowship and unity are brought where it wasn't, is the same Spirit that will raise us from the dead. And he wants, Paul wants, those Corinthians believers, and he wants us to look to that hope and to expect a physical resurrection to be united with Christ in a body like his. There is only one time in the Gospels that Jesus ever directly tells someone they're wrong. And he confronts a lot of people, and he makes a a lot of uh, commotion, especially on the religious leaders. There was a sect of religious leaders named the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection. And this is the only time Jesus clearly and directly tells someone, you're wrong. (laughs) They brought to him a what they thought was a trap to try to prove that there was no resurrection from the dead. I'm not going to read the whole uh, exchange because it's too long, but it's recorded in Mark and in Matthew. And in Mark 12, I love this, he simply says to them, Mark 12, 24, after they give this explanation of why they think there's no resurrection, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? And Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I love that he says, have you considered that you might be wrong because you don't know the power of God or the scriptures? (laughs) That's a burn, my kids like to say. That is a burn. And it's the only time you'll find Jesus saying something that directly. For Jesus, the resurrection, our physical resurrection, is incredibly important to the Lord Jesus. So, our main text, Philippians 3, 20 through 21. 21 says, this hope from heaven, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus was given all authority and power in the heavens and on the earth. And this is clearly speaking hope into the Philippian believers that when he comes at his advent, he will transform our body to be like his glorious body John in 1 John also alludes to this same thing. He says, dear friends, we are now children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the important thing to look at is what happened when Jesus rose from the dead? We have a lot of accounts in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul starts out by listing out, look, Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to all these people. He appeared to these people. He appeared to these people in a body. I'm just going to read one passage in Luke that I think is really um, drives home this point of after Jesus rose from the dead. He, and I love how Jesus appears to them. 
Luke 24, 36 through 43. The disciples, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. I love how scared they must have been at peace to you. I think there would have been a, a little, a bit of anxiety. But they were startled and frightened, yes, and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you so troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Why do you think that's in there? Why do you think he did that? Do you think he wants to point to the reality that he wants our ultimate hope for those who have received the Spirit of God, have trusted in Jesus, to one day in restored bodies no longer corrupted by sin, Satan, and death, to eat with him again, to hug him, to touch him? I think he clearly in this appearing, and this is what they held. This is what the hope that they held. This is the hope that John and Peter and those that were with them, that's the hope that they communicated as the gospel spread. The hope to be with Jesus, yes, but how? To eat with him. I really think he wants us to receive that. New Testament theologian N.T. Wright says this, the early Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. That God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. Those Christians believe what Jesus had started, what God had started in the resurrection of Jesus was the start of the renewal of the world, of the renewal of all things. But what's incredible is that the renewed heavens and earth, God connects it to our own resurrection. Those who are sons and daughters of God, our own resurrection. And I'm going to read Romans 8 for us, 8, 18, because I think it also points to this in a beautiful way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The ultimate culmination is a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. The Old Testament prophesied about a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. 
We're going to read Revelation 21. But God beautifully connects it. What, a, what, a, what an incredible thing to think that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory of the children of God. It awaits our revealing so that we could be with him and rule and reign and live with him as God intended, as God desired, as he created this world. He doesn't view the world as bad he created to be good, but it says in Romans, this, this passage, he subjected it to this curse with the plan of restore, with the, with the plan of renewal. And that is what he is going to do. Second Peter 3 says, this promise we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth which righteousness dwells. When he's talking to the Philippians and telling them these things, that we're waiting for this hope from heaven, and he'll transform our bodies, he's contrasting it with believers, with those who were formerly believers or who, who were with the Philippians, who are now enemies of the cross of Christ. He said that their minds are set on earthly things. But the earthly things is connected to the corruption of this world, not the, not the goodness of God that God intended for his creation. So in Revelation 21, and this is the last one I'll read for you guys. This is the important one of what we are waiting for. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. So God is painting this picture that he restores our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says to be imperishable, to be like Jesus's. And at the restoring of our bodies, imperishable, is also the restoring of creation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What's interesting is there's two words for new. Um, in the Greek, it's kainos and neos. Neos is something brand new, something new in time. But the word used here is kainos, which means a renewal, which means a renewal, a remaking. I've used this analogy before, by so I apologize, but it's all that I've got. My neighbor reminds me of this so much. He loves VW bugs, and I don't know why, but he loves them. And years ago, he got this dilapidated VW bug that could not operate, had no engine to run, had tires that were falling apart, rusted everywhere. It was not fit for the road whatsoever. And so he got this and labored, even in the summer months, sweating and worked and worked and remade this thing. And it 
at the end of the road was beautiful, perfect paint, new engine, but not just what it was when it came off the factory line. He put these subwoofers in, and seven blocks away, you hear this thing thumping down the road, coming down our street. You cannot miss it. So it was new, quite new, remade, but before it was not fit for the road, it was not fit to drive, and then after, it was different, but it was remade and it was new. And Jesus, when he came, he had a body like ours, but it was different. He, he appeared into rooms. Some didn't recognize him. So there was a different, but there was also the reality that he wanted us to know that he was remaking our bodies to be with him on a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, when he put Adam in paradise at the beginning, Adam fell and all fell with him. But men and women who are meant to live in the body will live in a glorified body, in a glorified world, and God will be with them. Again, the ultimate, be with him. So what does this mean for us? Okay, scripture, ultimate hope, what we're looking for in the second coming of Jesus. Renewed bodies and a renewed earth, our ultimate end goal. What does it mean for us right now, today? Tim Keller says simply this, the way you live now is completely controlled by the what you believe about your future. And I believe that's true. I believe our friend Albert Camus, who had that worldview, lived in light of that. And if we don't see our future and look forward to what God is giving us and even allow the glimpses of the joy and beauty on this earth to point us to that ultimate fulfilling of his kingdom, it will change how we live here and now. An analogy Tim Keller used in this statement was if you put two guys in a room and you tell them you got to work 12 hours days, you got to put the widget in the wadget and just do that monotonous work all day, 12 hours a day, and the end of the year, pay one $20,000 salary, the other one gets a $40 million salary. How do you think each one would approach their work in that? And I think that's helpful, but I don't think it gets to the heart of it. I don't think it goes far enough. Because more than just an understanding of what the Bible says about our future, it speaks of an experience of the redemption that has already begun. And so what I said last week is our ultimate hope is the fulfillment, the fullness, the completeness of what has already begun. Something has already started. The resurrection of Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit for those who trust in Christ. The New Testament and early Christians knew that the renewal had started with the resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament talks about the age to come and this age. This age, this evil age where sin, Satan, and death still are doing their thing. We talked about that last week. They're still doing their thing. But the ultimate end where sin, Satan, and death are done away with, and we live with God in perfect union. But that reality has already begun. Paul says it like this. This is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you now, the hope of glory, the hope of the fullness. We already read Romans 8, but we, we have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan and we wait and we look forward to that glory. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. 
something that helped me understand this is just having a fig tree. And the, the fig tree, when it comes into season, it puts out leaves, but that's not the first fruits. And then it puts out these little green knobs, but that's not the first fruits because it's just a, a sign that fruit might come, but those can fall off. And then eventually you get the first fruit. It's before the harvest has come, but it's the first fruit. When you take it off and you bite into it, you taste the sweetness of it. And Paul is speaking of that, the first fruits of the Spirit, the life of the age to come, breaking in to here and now. I want to end um, just by sharing a quote. Um, I'm sorry, no, it's been a lot of quotes. But this, the, they were just all to warm you up for this one. So if you didn't pay attention to any of the other quotes, I forgive you. But this is the one. And it is longer, but it has a phrase in there that arrested my attention years ago that has helped me a lot to this day, that reality, that it's not just a future expectation, but it's a present experience because God has broken in and he has started something. He has poured out his spirit, and it is pointing to something, but we taste of it now. This is a guy named George Eldon Ladd. He's a New Testament scholar, focused on the kingdom of God. I'm going to read this for us. Thank you so much for putting up with me. Has this, has the realization gripped you that the very life of heaven itself dwells within you here and now? Did you ever know? Did you ever know that? I'm afraid we live most of our life in terms of promise. We often sing of the future, and so we ought to sing. Our gospel is a gospel of glorious promise and hope. Yes, the best, the glorious best, is yet to be. And yet, we are not to live alone for the future. The future has already begun. The age to come has reached into this this age. The kingdom of God has come unto you. The eternal life which belongs to tomorrow is here today. The fellowship which we shall know when we see him face to face is already ours, in part, but in reality. The transforming life of the Spirit of God, which will one day transform our bodies, has come to indwell us and transform our characters and our personality. It's the phrase, in part, but in reality, that got me when I first read it, in part, but in reality, yes, yes, we have an expectation. We need to know what our expectation is. We need to know that he wants us to live with him in restored bodies and a renewed earth. It's in part, but we taste of it now. And if our experience of God and walking with him here and now, we aren't tasting his goodness, pursuing his kingdom here and now. It would be very hard to have a hope and an expectation for what's to come. Because it's more of him, more of him, more of him. And glorious clarity. Right now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we will see clearly. We will see face to face. We will know as we have been known. Right now we know in part. When John wrote Revelation, 
He was writing it to Christians that were under extreme persecution. And they believed in that hope of a bodily resurrection. And there are historians throughout Rome. There was a Roman emperor, Domitian, who persecuted the the church and Christians terribly. And the way that they died, the hope that they held in that persecution is one of the main reasons Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire was that they held that hope under persecution. But three centuries later, Christianity got adopted widely in the Roman Empire, and that hope of heaven started to wane. The hope of the life to come started to get replaced by hope of what the world could offer us here and now. What this earth, this version, could offer us here and now. The focus of the Christians started to shift unto this life and not what was to come. And one of the bishops of that day, John Christentum, got exiled for the things that he said. And this is one of the things that he said. We admire wealth equally with the non-Christians and even more. We have the same horror of death, the same dread of poverty, the same impatience of disease. We are equally fond of glory and rule how then can they believe? He was struck by how the Christians of that day had gotten so comfortable with the life here and now and mirrored the worries and cares that the world carried that weren't children of God. And it pained him. And their witness in their world was so small, their light grew so dim. Some American youth leaders went to South America to inquire the youth leaders, why are your kids so full of life and love for Jesus? They gave them this response. I don't know if this was true, but this is what they said. You disciple them with an 80-year perspective. We disciple them with an eternal perspective. And I don't know if those Christian leaders were discipling their youth with a 80-year perspective, but I know our world disciples us with an 80-year perspective. That unless we're discipled by Jesus of Nazareth, we will be discipled by our world and we will carry an 80-year perspective on life and not an eternal perspective, and it will define how we live. I'm thankful Jesus didn't carry his 50 or 60-year perspective on life. He would have been more careful with the things that he said so as not to get himself killed But he didn't. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He was looking forward to find how he obeyed the Father now. So I think for us, I want us to receive the joy of the future that God offers us in Scripture, to believe it, to let it rise up in us and cause us joy and worship. And then recognize that our world is constantly pulling us to focus on what is here and now and to live in light of that. So what do we do? We take communion. We take communion. A wonderful reminder of what Jesus has done. I'm going to read from Luke 22 in a second, but... Jesus is saying, he's giving them this bread and this wine, and he's 
not only telling them what he's going to do with their sins, what he's going to do to reunite them to God, but he's also pointing to a feast. Revelation 19, hallelujah for the Lord our God reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lord. All of us who have received Jesus, receive him now in his blood and his body, are invited to that table with him that day. Restored and renewed body and earth. And in John 6, there's, in John, there's no communion passage. But there's a passage where Jesus talks about, eat my flesh, drink my blood. It caused a lot of issues. But this is what he said. I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. So when we take the body and the blood of Jesus, we're looking forward to that supper, to that table, to be together with him. And we are receiving the very life from heaven, which will raise our bodies on that day when he comes to be with him in fullness. We're receiving the invitation to the table by his grace and his grace alone. And we're receiving his life, which has the power to raise us from the dead.